saved American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. This is a special free episode of the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder, recorded on November 9, 2017, live from Duke Energy Week at Duke University. In this interview with an associate professor of energy systems and public policy in the Environmental Science and Policy Division at the Nicholas School of the Environment at Duke University, we discuss how utility resource procurement needs to adapt to a changing world and whether wholesale markets can survive the transition to more distributed resources with zero marginal cost. We also discuss the risk of becoming too dependent on natural gas to provide grid balancing services and talk about how storage may need to be valued in order to supplant gas generators at a high level. Level. We go now to our live interview with Dr. Dalia Patino Echeverri. She is a Gendel Associate Professor of Energy Systems and Public Policy in the Environmental Science and Policy Division at the Nicholas School of the Environment here at Duke. So you have a very interesting slate of research that you've done and an interesting background, and I, I wanted to just kind of start there. So you, actually one of the organizers of the conference told me that you grew up near a hydro plant and now you're studying energy storage markets. So I just got to know, like, was there a connection there at all? Well, I grew up in Colombia. Colombia is a country where hydroelectric plants represent 70% of the installed power capacity, generation capacity. And I did think a lot about energy growing up. I used to spend all my vacation in my grandmother's town, which is in the Coffee Grow region. And my grandmother <laughs> lost her husband with nine kids in the 1950s. But before he died, he did lots of pieces of energy infrastructure. So one mm. of them was an intake for the hydropower plant of that region. So I would always be told, oh, your grandfather built this like 10,000 times, you know. And then one of my uncles worked for the central generation plant. And so he had the right to go to the vacation homes in the dam. And we, it was very nice. It's a beautiful, you know, man-made lake and we could ski on the lake. And so, but more than that, we would go to the farm. It takes two hours, still takes two hours on horseback to get to this farm high in the central range of the Andes Mountains. And there was no electricity until I was probably 11 years old. And I knew firsthand how hard life can be when there is no electricity. Yeah. Women have to wake up very early, 4 a.m. or early when it is cold, to turn on the kerosene lamps, to start the wood stove. You are two hours away from the closest thing. <laughs> so there is no fresh food unless you grow it. Mm. That really made me think a lot about electricity. I also would visit the Eastern Plains in Colombia, and there it was a different story. There were solar panels for, these are vast lands. Everyone has very, very vast, like everyone who owned a farm there, the farm would be 3,000 hectares, for example. Mm. And, but the, the soil is very poor, the grass is very bad. So you need a lot of extensions for a few cows. You need electric fences. So these electric solar panels would provide electricity for those electric fences. Oh, wow. And for a few light bulbs and a radio and very small TV in the house of the people who live in the farm. But I became an engineer and then I went to Carnegie Mellon and Actually, the first thing they asked me when I went to Carnegie, what do you want to do? I wanted to apply decision-making models and options theory to the problem of peace negotiations between the guerrillas and the government in my country, a war that lasted for 50 years and has just come to the beginning of the end with the signing of a peace agreement. 
And in Carnegie Mellon, I took a class that was called The Challenges and Opportunities of the Electricity Industry. And I have used that title for several of my talks over and over the years. This was a full semester class with two professors. One of them is very, very well known to my students, Professor Lester Lieb, who very sadly passed away in 2011, and Professor Alex Farrell, who also passed away. They introduced us to the very big, deep questions about how to solve the problem of providing affordable, clean, and reliable electricity to society. Mm-hmm. And they told us that these questions are so difficult. You need input from all disciplines, and you need a great deal of quantitative analysis, and that these questions will not only allow you to use your quantitative tools, they will push your tools in new ways you would never imagined. So I got very excited, and that's when I started doing electricity work. All right, very cool. That's a great little piece of history there, and it's interesting to me to see how your background and your experience growing up could really lead you into a career in energy engineering, and I I hope you'll provide some inspiration for other people who are maybe in a similar situation there. So let's get into the geeky stuff then, since you're an engineer. So for the past decade, and actually long before that, back at least to the 1970s, utilities have always forecast that demand growth is going to always be greater in the future. It's going to be greater next year. It's going to be greater the year after that. And even though demand for electricity in the United States and in much of the developing world actually went flat or started to decline a decade ago, they have continued to forecast that demand was going to start going back up again next year. You know, next year, another year passes as flat. Oh, next year, it's going to start going back up again. So, you know, as this demand surge fails to materialize year after year, how much faith can we actually put in demand forecasts as a guide to utility capital investment and public policy? Can we believe these people anymore? No. (laughs) (laughs) We should desist of the whole idea of forecasting. That's a pretty bold statement. Yes, we should embrace uncertainty and we should come to terms with the fact that it is impossible to forecast load in the few years from now, let alone decades, which is what you need for capacity planning in the electricity sector. We cannot forecast fuel prices. We cannot forecast what our regulations going to bring, taxes for carbon emissions or for other things. So I don't like the word forecasting for these exercises. I think a better word is projections. And the projections should always be done under a different number of scenarios that expand the whole uncertainty range. Now, having said that, you need to know what is the middle point of your scenario. So that's what the utilities call forecast. And a few of them, actually, or more of them, increasingly, they do some sensitivity analysis for mm-hmm. these forecasts. But they really fail to say, how are they going to do things if the future deviates from their base projections for their base forecast? So if you desist from the idea of forecasting and just coming to terms with that forecast error is huge, what you do is you plan for all the scenarios, for all the possible scenarios, and then you see what would be the outcomes of any strategy if you had any of these scenarios. And that way you may come up with strategies that are more coherent with what your risk attitudes are. So risk if utilities are reflecting how we feel about electricity and we're probably very risk averse against blackouts. So, well, they were overbuilt in a certain way, right? Yeah. But yes, what you say is true. There are forecasts of electricity demand year after year. They are all point upwards. Yeah. Even though when you look locally, you say, oh, you see the countries will grow at less than 0.9%. So not that steep growth. Right. The reason of this is many times it's a structural. So there is a LBNL report that says that they studied about 11 or 12 utilities in the United States and they found that most of them, I think 10 out of the 11, failed forecasting demand, so megawatt hours, and maybe nine or so failed forecasting peak demand, which is also a huge part of the 
capacity planning problem. Right. Many of them had the good excuse of first thinking that after the recession, the economy would recover faster. So that's for the errors that they have made after 2008, for yep. example. Yeah. And this wasn't the case. And then, so those utilities that had, for example, most of their load coming from industrial customers, well, they were the worst. They had the highest forecast errors. That's because it's very hard to, to really foresee what is going to be the response of these industrial customers. And if only one of them shuts down, there is a huge portion of them that will go disappear automatically. All along the supply chain and so on. Yeah. yeah. So should we believe forecasts? No, we shouldn't believe forecasts. We should understand that this is an exercise. And in fact, we shouldn't put out or publish forecasts. We should publish uncertainty ranges. So we should say demand is likely to be between these with certain likelihood. It could be as much as this and even more, but we are not putting a probability of that one or even saying what is the exchange. We will plan for, for these scenarios. We think now... That's true for developed countries, OECD countries, the United States. We have this, except for this very, very big piece of uncertainty, which is electric vehicles. So how fast are we going to adopt electric vehicles? And how much electricity are they going to consume? And at what times of the day and where is this electricity going to be consumed? That's a big part of the uncertainty for these countries. Now, if we go to the developing world, then there is even more uncertainty. We have growing population. We have changing lifestyles that are meaning that there are, for the same population, there are less people per household, so more households for the same number of population. And then there is more purchasing power to acquire and consuming equipment, uh, domestic appliances. So that's on the residential demand side. In many countries, so we have a project that, like my postdoc Ming Chuan is here and I'm, I'm thrilled he's here <laughs> because he hears of me all day and I didn't tell him to come. So with Ming Chuan and other students, we have a project trying to project demand under different scenarios with a model from the bottom up, really looking at the fundamental components of demand and asking ourselves, what could be the values that this fundamental component of demand could take and how is that the uncertainty propagates as you combine all those factors with one another. So what could be the growth of population in China over the next 50 years? Look at different scenarios of fertility rates and mortality rates and policies of removal of the one-child policy, etc. What would be the trends on the size of households? Will we have the traditional Chinese household with, will we move to the trends in the more developed countries where households are smaller and smaller, you know, no, less people living under the same roof. What is going to be the interest in appliances and what is going to be the cost of those appliances and the income of the people to afford those appliances? And then you have to do the same analysis for the industrial sector and the commercial sector. But one thing is important, even in places where the residential sector doesn't represent a bulk of the demand, the residential sector when it peaks, it peaks the most. And that's what, you, what matters for capacity planning. Mm -hmm. You need to have your power plants ready for the peaks, even if you're not going to use them the rest of the year. Right. So all these air conditioning demand, for example, go to Mexico. We did a project in Mexico. 15%, only 15% of households in Mexico, according to the National Survey of Households and Expenditures, have air conditioning. Is there a need for air conditioning? Absolutely, because you find that in every single state of Mexico, there is air conditioning. And in every single income bracket, there is air conditioning. The survey doesn't tell you what type of air conditioning, but even in houses with rooftops of cardboard and walls of recycled material, there are some of them who report having an AC. Oh boy. So what will be the demand in the future? We don't know. We shouldn't pretend we will know it. We should find out what is the range of possible demands and plan for that. Okay, I'm totally down with that. And I appreciate your scenario emphasis because I try to do the same thing, uh, especially in my day job work where I am trying to figure out what the demand of electric vehicles is going to be, especially in the developed world. It really is a difficulty. But 
just to stay in the developed world context for a minute, if we're going to ask utilities and their regulators to figure out what are the appropriate investments going forward, they don't know what to do with a big range of uncertainty and scenarios. Like at the end of the day, they have to pick one and they have to decide how to move forward with an investment plan. And as we get to a highly renewable grid, let's say 80% renewables 30 years from now or whatever, it's generally assumed that we're going to need a lot of storage to help balance out the variability of resources and to provide reliable power. And some analysts have suggested that we're going to need a lot of storage, like enough to provide all of the grid's needs for six weeks or some really high target like that. Some think that we're going to need a lot of seasonal storage because of this mismatch between the peak demand, as you were pointing out, and sort of the base demand. But how can we even hope to know how much or what kind of storage we're going to need in the future, especially given the uncertainty about how the grid is going to evolve? And aren't we still actually in the very early days of exploring how renewables and storage systems interact with the grid and how different grid assets or even portfolios of assets can provide services like flexible ramping that only used to be provided by hydro and natural gas peaker plants. So given all of this uncertainty, how are we supposed to figure out whether we should be building another gas peaker plant or whether we should be trying to rely on more hydro or how much storage we should be trying to build? Like, how do we give anybody useful guidance on what to invest in? Well, I know it's the a question, hard question. Are, <laughs> are we in the early ages? Yes, we are. In the United States, for example, early this year in March, we set a record. 10% of the electricity in March came from renewables. 8% came from wind, 2% from solar. It's impressive, but it's nothing compared to the future where we want to get, right? 10%. Yet this 10% is posing lots of challenges. Every day, independent system operators and market designers and officials in the electric utilities are thinking, how are we going to deal with this? And are coming up with new rules and with new products and with new incentives to have what we need to integrate these renewals. So you say storage, yes. Renewals, when we talk renewals, we mainly in the United States refer to non-conventional renewals, so wind and solar, which happen to be intermittent, happen to be so variable, right? So they're uncertain. So wind is more uncertain than solar, because that for solar, at least we have the certainty of that solar will not be generated at night and that the peak will be at the noon hours, right? But they both pose lots of challenges. The markets have come up with patches to solve the problem of not providing enough incentives to the assets that would help this integration to happen. So if you have an intermittent renewal, you need something that allows you to follow those fluctuations, right? Uh, that is why we have in the mid-continent independent system operator, MISO, and in the California independent system operator, KISO, the new product called flexible ramp capability, right? Flexi ramp in California, ramp capability products in MISO. Just started just very recently, you know, less than a year ago, trying to find ways in which we reward the generators, as you said, any generator, if it is if a large pool of generators, even if they are small, if you have them with enough room capacity, they could all together provide the ramping needed to you know, increase power output when solar is low or when wind is low. So how do you create these? Well, I think it's the, for the most part, these electricity markets have been trial and error. So just put this there, and then in a couple of years, we'll find out that we need something more than just these markets. In fact, we know in the academic world, we think that the way to match demand and supply at all times is not necessarily by saying, this is my forecast demand, and I know there is an error, and I plan for this error. Maybe what we should do is just say, this is all what demand could be, and this is all what wind could be and solar could be. So these are all the scenarios of the supply I would need. And these are the probabilities of those scenarios. 
And we plan differently than just planning for this set point with some errors on the top. So that's a stochastic market clearing and a stochastic unit commitment when you make sure that you are going to turning on and off the power generators, the conventional power generators and dispatch how much electricity are you going to get from them. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I think, I hope that answers your question, or you can ask me more. Yeah, no, I mean, we just kind of cracked open a big, difficult topic there. So how how much storage do we need? Well, that was another part of this question. If we want 100% renewables, then we need massive amounts of storage. There is no question about it. And we need different kinds of storage. So not all storage is equal. You need other different types of energy storage are good for different applications, Mm -hmm. right? Energy storage is different in the terms of the cost per energy, the cost per power, their life cycle, their response rate, the accuracy with which they can respond to a signal of increase or decrease power output. If we want 100%, we will need a lot, but maybe we don't need 100%. Maybe we can settle with something less than that. Or we could have a lot of renewals, but just make sure that we don't expect the renewable assets to be generating all the electricity when they are able to generate. If we say curtailment, so shedding, spilling, <laughs> not using the wind or the solar when it is coming because our system cannot take it, if we are okay with that and we build the solar and the wind farms in places that are spread geographically so that we benefit of some of this hedging that there is going on naturally when it is sunny here, it's not sunny there. When it is windy here, it may not be windy there, several hundreds of kilometers away. If we do that, those will be ways to reduce us. Mm-hmm. the need for battery energy storage. Well, what about natural gas as a balancing asset on the grid? I mean, I think, especially since the advent of fracking and this general belief, which I think is actually a little bit questionable, that we're going to have this massive abundance of shale gas for 100 years or whatever the idea is. Many observers seem to be pretty confident that natural gas will, in fact, be the convenient and inexpensive way to provide on-demand power for peaking loads, for grid balancing services, and so on. But what if shale gas is a bonanza that actually just puffs out in about 10 years, or gas becomes more expensive than storage? in the relatively near future. In that case, we would actually be building a lot of gas plants now to provide what we think are these long-term services when in fact we're actually just building the next generation of stranded assets. Like how do we decide how much gas capacity really makes sense to build right now? Yeah, that's an excellent question. So yeah, today it seems like we have a gas bonanza. We have really unheard of natural gas prices in the United States, close to $3 per million BTU. And even in the world, we have oversupply of natural gas. But this is temporary, especially these very low prices. They are temporary and they will not stay for more than a few years until the demand catches with the supply. Now, will we run out of natural gas? I don't know. What I know is that If we get serious about climate change and about reducing emissions from the electricity sector, natural gas alone is not the answer. Consider a coal-fired power plant. Coal-fired power plant emits 0.9 tons of CO2 per megawatt hour. A gas plant emits 0.5, so a little bit more than half. It's not a solution. Right? Unless you have your natural gas plants coupled with carbon capture and storage, mm-hmm. like you would have done with coal as well. Right. Natural gas alone is not a solution. Now, that's if we are only looking at the emissions of natural gas plants at the combustion point. If you look at the life cycle of natural gas generated electricity, you have to ask, what are the greenhouse gas emissions from the point you extract natural gas from the ground, when you process it, when you transmit it, and when you distribute it to the places where it's gonna be burned. And over there, there is this very important detail, which is that natural gas is methane. And methane is a very potent greenhouse gas, right? Several times more potent than CO2, you know, like about 
30 times if you talk about 100-year warming potentials for 20-year warming potentials, close to 70, 70 times. So one molecule of methane is about 70 times more potent than one molecule of CO2. If we emit natural gas or methane when we are extracting it or when we are processing it or when we're transporting it, we may lose the environmental benefits that we have when we transition from coal to gas. The estimate says that if your emissions are more than 2.7% of the natural gas that you use, if your fugitive emissions, if your emissions along the supply chain, the life cycle are more than 2.7%, then coal is no different than gas. Mm. And the sad part is that there are people looking at these and what they say. So the EPA estimates of emissions are just estimates because we don't really measure these. You look, what have been the estimates from 1990 to 2015? Well, they start at 3.2% and they end at 1.9%. A recent paper, very credible paper from early this year, I think it was in PNAS, you may remember this paper, we discussed it in LCA, says that the estimates of the EPA should be multiplied by almost two, a factor of two. So right there, we have much more than the emissions we can afford. The, yeah, the, these I, are think the, I, the, I think I remember the study you were talking about. I think it focused in on the fact that the EPA had underestimated the fugitive emissions. Right. Yeah, yeah so they had underestimated. There are lots of other studies that do bottom-up and top-down estimates of what these mm -hmm. emissions are. They all come more than EPA. Many times the studies that are top-down end up with estimates that are higher than bottom-up. Alan Krupnik from Resources for the Future run a study looking at this, you know, a mega study looking at these studies and what policies could do about these emissions. And there are things that can be done. Like Obama-era regulations really cared about reducing these emissions from this extraction and transportation and distribution, reducing them. There are some states, Colorado, California, Pennsylvania, who are also taking measures to reduce these emissions. But it's a big problem. So putting all our eggs in the basket of natural gas, thinking that we are doing great things for the environment or for our economy, I don't think it's a good idea. Well, I take your point on an emissions basis, but actually I was trying to think more of it from the perspective of utility planning. Mm -hmm. You know, what are the right kind of assets to be building for a balanced grid as we move into a high renewables grid? And I think, you know, as we were just saying a moment ago, there's really no way to say what the future grid will look like. We don't know how the grid mix is going to evolve. Trying to pick a particular policy target or for storage or whether it's, you know, a particular plan of grid assets, a portfolio is just very difficult. And so I guess where I've landed on it is to say that the best approach we can take right now is to build small assets that are flexible and adaptable so that we can move into a, an uncertain future without as much money at risk, basically. So uh, big nuclear plants that, you know, we're going to build now because we think we can forecast demand for them for 30 years, I think those are off the table. Likewise for big coal plants. And in fact, I wonder if the era of building big power plants itself is just over. If we just need to stop building big power plants, at least in the developed world, so what do you think about that? Like, what is the prudent approach to investment during energy transition, especially given all this uncertainty? And should we be thinking differently now than we did in the last century about who assumes the risk for those investments? Right. Yes, you said it. We have to build or at least consider resources, not necessarily build, because they are the best things we can do is not build. <laughs> you know, invest in energy efficiency, in conservation, sure. in demand-side response. We have to consider what is the value of each resource we add to the portfolio in terms of their flexibility and in terms of the risk they pose under different possible futures. So conservation has no risk, right? Nothing will change if, if you make your buildings more energy efficient no matter what the oil or natural gas prices are, no matter if the wind is blowing or not, that is going to help you. Right. So I think looking at energy efficiency and conservation as 
in terms of the risk mitigation that they provide to the portfolios is actually very important. And then considering all these ranges of possible futures and building modular. And since you mentioned large nuclear plants, then I think we can talk about advanced small modular reactors. So I'm not, I'm actually not against nuclear, I think, or any source of generation. And maybe in the, we can just move this for globally. I mean, when we're talking about this, I'm not necessarily saying the, the United States, but this is a technology that we should consider more seriously. And actually the DOE is, is being serious about this and is putting a request for joint funding for the next year. It's actually an idea from my, my advisor and my mentor, Granger Morgan from Carnegie Mellon University. He says, imagine, when you talk about nuclear plants, imagine that we had every single aircraft had to be built and licensed independently. What would happen if you had to do it in the same way you do with nuclear plants today? Right? Each of them are designed, built, and licensed independently. Well, you would have to train pilots and mechanics for each type of aircraft, right? For that, not types, for that one particular. You would have to make parts for that specific aircraft. The safety would be compromised and the cost would be huge. And that's the way we do nuclear plants. So of course we cannot manufacture 1000 megawatt or more like, you know, the gigawatt scale nuclear plants in factories the way we do Boeing 747s or common aircrafts. But we can do small, these advanced nuclear, small modular reactors in the tens of megawatts to maybe up to 300, 400 megawatts. They can be built in a central manufacturing plant and they can be shipped. And the risk of nuclear proliferation is greatly reduced because they can come pre-fueled, sealed. They can be fueled for a long time. And maybe if you need more fuel, you can just ship them again, or you can have, there are all these, also the safety, the safety measures could be great. So this would also allow building nuclear in places where it is not possible and would at times eliminate the need for betting an arm and a leg on an asset that may not be needed later. I take your point. I actually draw a pretty hard line on the podcast in that I only really want to talk about things that exist. And Mm -hmm. I've been hearing about SMRs for about a decade now, and they still don't exist commercially. And I remain very skeptical about them, frankly. But I do take your point that if we were able to make that into a scalable and Mm -hmm. technology that we could produce in mass, it could be an interesting part of the solution set. But I guess more generally, I'm just trying to focus on what are the assets that are flexible and small and don't require Mm -hmm. genius forecasting for demand Mm -hmm. and can limit the risk of investment as we proceed into a high renewables future. Yeah. So if you had to choose between coal and natural gas for baseload power, then you would go with natural gas at this moment. That's exactly what we are doing. We're going with natural gas. So the capital costs of natural gas are lower. The permitting, the licensing, the building of a natural gas plant is also much faster and easier. So small natural gas combined cycle power plants is what we are taking as an approach. Yeah. But at the same time, what I'm saying is also considering all these other resources that are non-generation resources. Right. You know, adding more megawatts. Oh, absolutely. To the the system and valuing them for what they are for, adding incentives so that they happen more often. Yeah. I think it's a great approach for utilities. I agree. I mean, I fully support utility investment in all sorts (laughs) of conservation and efficiency. So, you know, on this notion of grid evolution, you've done some interesting work on integrating wind and solar into the grid, particularly in conjunction with storage. And so I'd like to ask you one of the popular questions about that, which is as we get more wind and solar on the grid, and as that power gets firmed up with storage, 
we expect that the wholesale prices in competitive markets will generally fall because the capex, the capital cost of the systems, is actually reaching parity with conventional power plants, while the fuel cost, the opex, is free for wind and solar. So what do you think the implications of this are for grid operators and generators in competitive markets? I mean, we're already seeing Rick Perry, for example, trying to use the Department of Energy to create new subsidies for nuclear and for coal plants, which are largely failing economically because of this increased competition from wind and solar. So where does this path take us in terms of wholesale markets? Can we fix competitive markets? Or are they destined to be irreparably broken by generators with zero marginal operating cost as we move into a high renewables future? Or at least on the one hand, and then on the other hand, kind of a steady stream of attempts to do market interventions or around market reforms to try to prop up these failing plants. Like, are competitive markets doomed? Right. So wholesale electricity markets in the United States have worked, I think, remarkably well for what they were designed. They were designed for providing the least cost electricity reliably at the time when they are cleared, right? And they have successfully done that, although it's not 100% clear where they are doing it better than the regulated era approaches we had. But they were not designed for integrating renewables, They were not designed to dispatch the most environmentally friendly electricity that you have at the moment. And they were not designed for having balanced portfolios of generation. They were not designed for that. Mm -hmm. So we have needed to add more and more and more things. They have been a moving target. As I said, every year there is a new element of market design in one of the big markets of the United States. I struggle to keep up with them and I have to teach a class in the spring and it's very hard because there are always new new rules from FERC talking about these innovations that these markets are going to have and what they should do. So it is true renewals receive a subsidy. So the reason we have wind and solar in the massive installations of wind and solar that we have seen is because they have reduced production tax credits and because we have renewal portfolio standards in more than half of the states of this country. So you have a competitive market, but some of the players receive subsidies. Well, subsidies on one set of the players imply that you need to put subsidies on other set of the players if you want these other things that the market is not designed to provide. If you want a balanced portfolio, and you want carbon-free, you don't want your new existing nuclear plants to retire. Not prematurely. But they will if they don't recover their operating and maintenance costs with the electricity prices they are receiving that are very low, are at the lowest because they are following the natural gas prices. Natural gas and electricity prices, in the, at least in the four or five markets of the United States, are very well correlated. Mm-hmm. So you need to say, well, do I value these nuclear plants for their carbon-free characteristic and for their diversity that they add to their portfolio for the fact that they are not exposed to natural gas fuel price risk. And because they are base load, they operate as base load capacity. And you need to add something to there. So the electricity markets, the way we design them are not necessarily designed for this. So we need to redesign them. We need to do massive renovation of those. But that's difficult. So what we are doing is just incrementally adding and adding and adding things, and we will continue to do that. So this works against, for example, these prices work against nuclear plants and against coal plants. They also work against battery storage, for example. So the little battery storage that we have participating in markets in the United States is either there for two reasons, one of two reasons. One, because it's in regions where the the regulators have mandated that this storage should be installed, or because they are valued and they are allowed to participate in the ancillary services market to provide frequency regulation. And guess what? You allow frequency regulation participation, and then there is a massive battery storage, and they depress the prices, and it's no longer a good idea to install a battery to participate in the frequency regulation market. So if you talk to our students working on battery storage. Well, battery storage is now considered as an option by commercial and industrial customers that have high demand charges and they want to offset that. So they want to reduce their peak 
so that the utility doesn't charge them too much for their electricity, or by renewable producers who are also charged for not delivering what they said they would deliver. But in the market itself, the storage until today with the prices we have and incentives we have is not really a viable proposition, partly because it's still very expensive. You know, mm-hmm. Battery energy storage is still an emerging technology and very expensive compared to other sources of electricity generation. Well, if your vision is to have just a kind of continued accumulation of patches on competitive markets, this does not give me a great deal of confidence going forward. <laughs> I mean... I, I think we're we're heading toward a point where just the weight of all those patches itself becomes a risk, you know, where we just might see the collapse of wholesale markets. And you were talking about the kind of the price deflation effect as you get more storage on the system, you saturate a market like ancillary services, and then all of a sudden the price collapses. People have worried about the same thing happening with an influx of renewables. You know, what happens when solar forces everything else out of the grid except for for a new marginal unit of capacity is going to be solar but now we're facing negative prices in the middle of the day and nobody can afford to build a solar plant either Hmm. you know i mean if we're going to have sustainable competitive markets as we move into this high renewables future i think we're going to need some sort of either a restructuring or some sort of intervention, maybe at the regulatory level. Maybe we're just going to have to set a floor for wholesale power costs. I don't know, but I really question whether there's a future in just continually patching things. Mm. I think there is a future. We've been successful in <laughs> keeping up, even though you know not as efficiently as you would always hope. And as long as we recognize that what we need is really create value, the services that every resource in the system provides, right? So distributed energy resources provide services. We have to value those services. Central powered plants, transmission lines provide service. If we value those services accordingly, but they also impose costs. If we value those costs accordingly at every time scale. So what is the service they provide for meeting demand today and for the meeting demand in the future? And we manage to reflect that in the incentives that we put in the marketplace, we can make it. Mm. If we think early, so that means now, how are we going to allow the central grid to coexist and benefit from the distributed energy resources? So these other parts of the grid to coexist and benefit so that we don't lose any of those. And we keep balanced portfolios. We keep not only reliability, but resiliency and long-term resiliency, I think we can make it. All right. Well, that's a pretty optimistic note. Maybe we should leave it there. So we've got about 10 minutes left here. Let's open the floor to questions. Go for it. Um, So as we kind of talk about discussions of how to actually inject value into things that we previously didn't value, like resiliency or flexibility, how do you think about tackling those issues without using controversial things like statistical value of a life or, you know, other kind of canon numbers that also have very subjective assumptions baked into it. How do we kind of move forward from that model of forcing numbers to things that inherently do not have numbers to it? That's an excellent question. (laughs) Um, I think we should try to put numbers to things even though the numbers may be controversial. And this is the reason why. So when I said we need capacity planning under uncertainty and we need to have scenarios and probabilities, of course, I'm not confident in saying this scenario has this probability. But anyways, when I'm choosing one, I'm implicitly, in the back of my mind, I have a number for that probability. And it is the same when you are making a decision, when you are deciding that you will invest in this backup generator you have behind that unconsciously made a statement about the value of a statistical life. So people die when there are hot days and they don't have air conditioning. They underperform in their school and in their jobs when there are hot days and they don't have air conditioning. So not having electricity has a cost. And as imperfect as it may be 
the number we can put there, we have to make the effort. Because when we make the decisions, we could, from every decision you have made, I could tell you what were the numbers you put right to that decision as the optimal. So thinking in terms of air quality and the health impacts of inequality in terms of what are the economic costs of health quality of pollutants and what are the costs of blackouts? What is the cost of, not, of high reliability? I think we need to do that and do that the exercise all the time and understand fact of life, which is that any time we are choosing one generation source, we are trading one risk for another. There is no escape from risk. Choose one, the one you like the most, that are risk associated to it, environmental risks and economic risks. And then integrate that risk as a price into right. the market cost. Right. So you have to think about, is the problem is that some risks are, the risks are not all equal. Some risks are very imminent. Some other ones are spread along decades, like climate change. But we are trading one risk for another. Mm -hmm. And we should do the analysis of what are the numbers that we are putting to the probabilities of those risks and the, and the extent of those risks. Well, I'm, I'm all for internalizing externalities. I think we've hardly exhausted the opportunity to do that. Let's put it that way. Anybody else? Sure. Uh, so my question is actually shifting to Africa. So no China, no US right now. I'm wondering, we're trying to electrify Africa. What's your position on off-grid versus on-grid? I did a whole podcast about that, by the way. So great question. All right, go ahead. So I spent all Tuesday with Professor Ildo Sauer here judging the teams that participated in a case competition that the excellent organizers of the Energy Week put together. And the winning team won because they looked and they understood that there is no silver bullet. There is no one size that fits all. So in the urban centers of Africa, in the cities, you need central power generation and you need to extend the grid. In the rural areas, it may be too expensive to connect the central grid to deliver those areas. So you may have just some microgrids and that provide the services you need the most in those regions and that thought through in terms of what is the energy and the power capacity you need, not only for residential power, but these people have the right to develop commercial and industrial applications and so have productive power there. And then there are these other ones who live very far away are very spread in the rural space. Well, for those, then you can have distributed resources and you can have the small solar systems with batteries and with the appliances that are set to work with this. I think that looking at the system as a whole and thinking what makes sense where is probably the way to go. Makes sense to me. Anybody else? Yeah. I really appreciate the mention of energy efficiency and sort of the idea that not building an asset is actually the cheapest way to go. And I want to ask about how, what the best way for utilities to think about energy efficiency um, bidding into a market. How can utilities think creatively about demand response or um, you know, creative things that they can call it storage so it can be attractive? Is there, are, is there potential to think about energy efficiency in those sorts of ways or is it fundamentally different? No, it is. This is a great question. There is potential to treat energy efficiency as a resource that will help you balance demand and supply at all times. And we just need to think what is the value that this resource provides. So is it just the reduction of the peak demand? And should you value it only because of this reduction of the peak demand? Or this energy efficiency? Well, by reducing load at all times and different interventions or measures of energy efficiency have different effects on the load curve. What is the value at each point in time? And then if there are markets, then trading that in the markets, we need the markets to recognize that and allow it. And if there is in vertical integrated regions, then regulators should allow the utilities to get enough return for these investments. 
Yeah. And we did an episode with Matt Golden mm-hmm. uh, of the podcast earlier, who's really a brilliant guy in this space. And yes. He's advocated some ways to turn efficiency into markets effectively and kind of get away from the programs-based approach that regulators and utilities have generally pursued in the past. I think there's real opportunity there. Anybody else? we got probably one more question and then we're going to wrap up here with Dahlia. Sure, go for it. Looking at the devastation wrought in Puerto Rico and the loss of the power grid there, um, if you had it under your control, what would you do? How would you rebuild the electric grid there? Oh, that's a difficult question. How would I rebuild the grid? I haven't looked at the case of Puerto Rico, so I don't know specifics, but one thing is certain is that, so we should do anything we can to reduce our exposure to flood, earthquakes, and storms. Everything that is within our part, we should do it. But we should also acknowledge that no matter what we do, large blackouts for long periods of times will happen and will continue to happen. So we have to adapt to that reality. And the question is, what should you have in place for that? So distributed energy is one, batteries, shelters that are air conditioned and have all the needs you have for temporary relocation of people that have been affected. And then we should also acknowledge that there are some places where we should never rebuild. As sad as it may sound, if there are places that I'm not talking about Puerto Rico, I don't know, but there are places where we just see continuous losses from these natural hazards. There are places where the risk of rebuilding is just too high, of being hit again is just too high. And then the exercise planning we have to do is just look, take a very long planning horizon and see what makes sense. So underground lines make a lot of sense when you have these modular things that you can repair faster, keeping parts on tight, etc. It's things that will help be more resilient. Yeah, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of interest in microgrids as well as a possible solution for Puerto Rico. But it's an excellent question and one we should look at. Yeah, well, I agree. Yeah. All right, I think we can wrap it up there. Please join me in thanking Dalia Patino Echeverri. <laughs> perfect. You said perfect. All right. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.